End of intermission. Part two. This is um, Jeff Emmerich's observation in his book of when they return to record the White Album. He said, Our first night back in the studio began, as usual, with small talk and catching up. So how was India, I asked. I sensed at that moment that something fundamental in them had changed. The rage that was bubbling inside John was the most obvious sign that something was seriously wrong. There was a new tension between John and Paul. And then he he doesn't even speculate on what it is. <laughs> He's just like, right, right. I, I can't even, I don't even know. Right, but, so he, he doesn't know, but it's interesting that he he observes that immediately, right? Like that was the first thing yes. that he comes in and he, he observes that there's, first of all, that John's angry and mm-hmm. that there seems to be some issue between them. And then he makes the point, um, we don't have this here, but he, he also makes the point that, you know. Paul was evasive. Paul was evasive and Paul wasn't his usual engaged self in those sessions. He was... Um, little bit hands off and he didn't know why and then he says that he always wanted to ask him what had happened in India but he never got the nerve okay and then uh, we have a quote from Yoko Ono on June 4th of 1968 this is uh, approximately two weeks after John and Yoko had their first date and they have now become sort of boyfriend and girlfriend and John has started to bring Yoko everywhere with him, including the studio. It's, it's hard to hear over the um, music, but she's talking about Paul. And she says, I can see he's just now suddenly changing his attitude, like he's being treating me with respect, not because it's me, but because I belong to John. I hope that's what it is, because that would be nice. <laughs> and I feel like he's my younger brother or something like that. I'm sure if he had been a woman or something, he would have been a great threat because there's something definitely very strong between John and Paul. And I feel like he's my younger brother or something. If he had been a woman or something, he would have been a great threat because there's something definitely very strong between John Paul and Ringo. You just have been out with him. June fourth. I mean, they've literally been dating for two weeks. Two for two weeks. <laughs> right. She's like, holy shit. Thank God Paul isn't uh, a woman. I mean, that's a pretty outstanding statement. Thank you, Yoko, for being kind of clueless and audio recording that. I love that. And she doesn't even say, like, I'm sure that if Paul had been a woman, he and John would have been married or together or something like that. She says, no, he would have been a great threat. Well, and how does it, why do you take that as being different? Because I think she's saying, I feel threatened. And I'm just reassuring myself that, thank God, John doesn't like guys. Yeah, it's, it's pretty extraordinary, actually, that she said that, you know, and, and that nobody actually picks it, picks it up. Because the thing is, is that, you know, this is, if it was just Paul that was after John, I don't think she would feel that threatened. She's got to feel threatened because, because the person that she's interested in obviously has a great love for Paul, too, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 
All right. Well, thank you, Yoko, for telling us that there is this bond that exists between them. <laughs> That's palpable to you immediately. Thank you. So when John and Yoko get together, they start coming to the studio together. And, you know, nobody really asks why John is doing this because they're always given a pass. You know, their union was so special. Their love was so extraordinary that they couldn't be apart. You know, this is all based on their mythologizing of their union <laughs> that we know that they have done from many sources that they loved to mythologize their own union, their own love. Um, but it, you know, it served a purpose. When people look back, they're like, they don't read other motives into John and right. Yoko. They just treat right. them like, oh, they're special. We can't understand that level of love. But beyond that, I think that bringing Yoko into the studio is not necessarily about them being so in love. I think it served some very real purposes that he may have only been doing subconsciously, but it was still a very real move on John's part. You know, I think it was partly protection. You know, he's felt very professionally low and, and Yoko has been supportive, you know, I see your genius. So, you know, he's br brought somebody in who's gonna be his 24 seven advocate. And, um, you know, his safety raft, he's got always got something in case somebody leaves or in case the Beatles break down, he's got somebody, he's not alone. Partly though, I also think she was used as a provocation for Paul, to provoke Paul. You know, I've got somebody who sees me and acknowledges me and sees my genius. So, you know, what are you going to do about it? You know, I and, and I don't know if this was conscious or not, but it's certainly throwing something in Paul's face that you could be replaced. Okay, so there's a term in psychology called triangulation. It's something that a certain type uses and it's basically a manipulation technique for when this person feels insecure. What they do is throw in another person to unbalance the original and make them compete. So in this scenario, if John was feeling insecure, he brings in Yoko to say to Paul, hey, you have competition. You haven't been doing enough for me. Uh, which, even though it may not be true, plays on the person like Paul's insecurity and throws them off their game a little bit. You know, one thing I find odd is that later at the end of 1970 in London Remembers, John at one point says that he considered bringing Yoko to India with him, um, but he doesn't really explain why. Like, he's just kind of, this is like a non sequitur. He just mentions that and I think the typical explanation like the jean jacket explanation is that it's because John was secretly already in love with her but he that's not what he says John's also pretty consistent that his interest in Yoko was strictly artistic until May when they make two virgins and then have sex afterwards so if he doesn't want to take her to India for sex reasons, <laughs> then um, I don't know what to make of that. Like, I guess we can conclude it was for amusement, right? Like, because prior to her becoming the girlfriend, she's kind of like an, a Magic Alex figure, right? Yes. Like she's kind of like a curiosity. To yes, him. something that he finds interesting and stimulating. Right, like he thinks, oh, this 
weird kooky artist like mm-hmm. fun times like you know like she's a court jester so like mm-hmm. Matt, like Alex right <laughs> so it might have been just for his own amusement but then I thought once you know once I started thinking about it like maybe it's for the same reason the 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 same reason that I think he brings her to the studio which is to triangulate you know like so maybe maybe he he conceived of her even prior to India, he conceived of her in the way that he later used her. You know what I mean? Like as a tool of triangulation. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think John does a lot of these things unconsciously. However, that doesn't mean he's not trying to achieve these goals. You know what I mean? Like he he may not be thinking, I am going to be doing this for triangulation purposes. But I think that because he's a master manipulator, I mean, he he admits to that. And he understands power structures that if he's not getting the attention that he needs and wants, that throwing people in to the mix is something that he knows has worked in the past. John, in that year, people take him to be quite secure and on his own mission with Yoko. But realistically, you know, when he's talking in retrospects, he admits that he was worried or he was aware or concerned that Paul might be thinking about leaving. So perhaps we should make the point that John was not convinced that Paul wasn't thinking of leaving in 68. That's right. He mentions it. In retrospect, when he's talking about, why don't we do it in the road? He came in and he, he made the whole record, him drumming, him playing the piano, him singing. So just because it, it was getting to be where he wanted to do it like that, but he couldn't, mm-hmm. couldn't it, maybe he couldn't make the break from the Beatles. I don't know what it was. But. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think that this challenges really, really challenges some of the narrative because what he expresses there is much more insecurity. And I think that, Mm -hmm. again, keeping it in mind that John's biggest fear is being abandoned by people he loves and loving people more than they love him, Mm -hmm. that if he's suspecting at that time that Paul may be thinking of going on his own, maybe this is why he thinks that Paul had been inattentive. You know, there, he, there, for some reason, he thinks that Paul is not paying attention and he may be thinking because he doesn't love me or he's not as interested in me or he wants to leave and go on, go on his own. And I think that, you know, this is support for that. The, the interesting part to me is that I have never, ever heard Paul say that in 68, he was looking for a way out of the Beatles. I, I agree. I mean, that's incredibly interesting because to me, it probably means that he wasn't. And this is how much John was reading into Paul or misreading Paul or insecure, his, how much he was being led by insecurity. Yes. Because, you know, in 1970, as soon as the breakup happens and John has egg all over his face, he's like, well, Paul wanted the Beatles the most. He desperately wanted the band, you know, 
we were all ready to go, and it was Paul who couldn't break the right. cord or whatever. You right. Know? And this is only in the 70s when he's a little more relaxed talking about it that he admits that he, you know. This is 1980. Oh, this is 1980. Right. So, you know, and 1980 is when he starts to change his tune. And I think he really is reevaluating from a fresher perspective, you know. And I think, as we've said, I think he is probably trying to communicate to Paul a little bit, too, you know, that he was insecure at the time. He thought that maybe Paul was going to leave, but he, and I think there's another interesting point here, which is that he doesn't know why Paul doesn't leave, but he doesn't say it's because of him. He attributes Paul yeah. not leaving to maybe being afraid he or he couldn't, yeah. or he couldn't break from the Beatles. And I think that that yes. is a really big issue for John that, you know, yes. as we, as we've su suspected that John is very hurt because of something personal that he thinks Paul doesn't love him yes. more than everything else. And he thinks that Paul loves the Beatles more than he loves John. Right. I think that's a huge, huge issue. Yes. You know, I, I, if there's anything that people were to take away, I would think that would be one of the, the takeaways that I want is that John is needs to know that he's more important to Paul than the band or than fame. And in this statement, he says that he doesn't, can't break away because of his attachment to the Beatles or some other reason, but he doesn't claim it's him. No. And that's what he complains about into the seventies as well, because it's always about like, well, Paul, he just wanted to, to keep the Beatles going and fame and everything around, like his own success. Like that's the only reason that Paul is still sticking around. Right. As much as the books love to talk about Paul's great love for John, which which I think he does have, clearly yeah. John does not see it that way. He does not see himself as no. what's keeping Paul up there. No, never. He Like, never. And if you actually looked at what he's saying, you will get that. That's something that, that we will continue to talk about. But there is such yeah. a misinterpretation of how John sees Paul. John sees yes. Paul as yes. very strong and self-sufficient and yes. not loving towards John. You know, we'll, we'll continue to talk about that throughout this episode, but I think it's important for people to keep in mind that, you know, step away from the books and what yes. they've said and look at John's own words from the time. Right. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. That's the thing. That's another thing that drives me crazy. It's like, the books seem to think that Paul isn't attractive. I know. You know? Weirdly, they seem to miss the fact that like the whole planet of women and probably many men um, were in love with Paul. I, I don't know how. Right. I don't know well, how. That's, there's yeah. a reason well, why he was like the most jerked off to fucking guy <laughs> of the 60s. Like, and pro like, probably close up there in the 70s too. <laughs> yeah, like, you're, like you're being ridiculous right now. Like you, you need to, you need to reevaluate. But like who would okay. not miss it? The person who would not miss it would be the guy who's has written 50% of his material with him or whatever, you know? Right, right. Yes, I mean, that's the thing, is that this is, John is the person that has chosen Paul as yes. his partner, and he makes this point in 1980, you know, that this, he Probably. chose Paul, 
proudly. bragging about. Those two see each other's strengths and flaws more than anyone else. But I think that, you know, they're more in love with each other and their partnership than anyone. There's only two artists I've ever worked with for more than one night stand, as it were. That's Paul McCartney and Yoko Ono. I think that's a pretty damn good choice. So this is the point um, that we were talking about how, you know, John and Paul sort of are, are kind of their biggest fans, right? They're each other's biggest fans. And I think that if John, for some reason, feels rejected in some way, and especially I think John feels not appreciated, okay? For some reason, he feels like he loves Paul maybe more than Paul loves him or his commitment is greater. And then he gets together with Yoko. And I think we see an, a series of activities that John does to prove himself. You know, Yoko says she sees his genius and they do a bunch of stunts and he kind of takes the, the White Album on as his, you know, this is my thing. You know, it, it, it ends the partnership a little bit in terms of the we. It's like John is proving himself and I think that that speaks to if you've been, if you feel like you've been a little bit rejected or not appreciated by somebody, I think there'd be the... the um, desire to prove yourself and say, fuck you for not seeing how great I am. You know, you're going to see it. I'm going to do this all on my own, or I'm going to leave this stuff and I don't need you. And you see that a little bit with him, with Paul, like he, he's, Paul is still participating, obviously a lot in John's songs and they're still collaborating, but less so there's a more of a desire to be on his own. But I think something that authors miss is how much Paul is John's chosen partner and the person, without a doubt, in my mind, that he most wants to impress. You know, there's the kind of the fuck you, but he also wants Paul to acknowledge the fact that John is a genius. And, you know, he's got Yoko seeing his genius, but I think that John is doing it for a bigger reason, to get the attention, right? Yes, and he specifically says that he feels like he's not creative and he's no good and his songwriting is shitty he makes such a big deal about paul being so full of himself with sergeant pepper i mean for the rest of his life he goes on and on about how the white album is better than sergeant pepper i think that by downplaying pepper he's downplaying paul and oh, unfortunately yeah. authors do not <laughs> do not recognize that you know they they do love the return of john but it's like when was john ever gone you know that, john was that's john what was, i don't get but but for some reason he has this feeling right yes and so when, yes. when we're talking about the 68 and him being worried that paul might leave he sees paul as very strong and capable yeah I mean, Paul is very strong and capable. Here's a, this is another important distinction. I don't think Paul wants John to be weak so that he no. can look better. No. I think Paul always wants John to bring his A game. And he's so excited when John does. I mean, he makes that point that he's so excited when he gets a walrus or when he gets a mm -hmm. uh, strawberry fields, you know? Like you said, he he. there's no upside for Paul... For John being weak. He wants John right. to be strong. Yeah. Anyways, anyways, I don't think that Paul ever, ever thought anything but the highest, had the highest regard for John's abilities. And this I, is I agree. And I think that that gets misinterpreted by authors all the time. So the, 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 
they're like, oh, but John, Paul just worshipped John, loved everything he did, thought he was a genius, like was constantly thirsty to get back together with him because he needed his artistic juice. Right. And like, if I I read that one more time, I'm going to fucking set fire to somebody's house. (laughs) I'm so tired of reading that. And and John just was, oh, disgusted by everything Paul did. His music was just, just trash. Right. I mean, again, where they get these crazy ideas of calling the world's most prolific, successful artist. Thank you. That did not need John in any way. But he liked being with John. There's a difference there. And he, he made he John stuff him. nice. But point is, is that, <laughs> point is that John wanted to impress Paul. And the problem was is that Paul already was impressed. So, you know, I think that Paul was just like, well, why? Why, why are you doing this? Yeah. It's important to think through John's attitude when it comes to Paul's songs as well, because... We see a radical shift in John's attitude towards Paul's music post-India. And Paul was doing the same thing he always did, which is he'd have one fun song, he'd have a ballad, he'd have a rocker, you know, and in the past, John was into all of those songs. But I think the thing is, is that John has come back with a bit of a chip on his shoulder about Paul. He's angry with Paul for something, whether it was leaving or whether not being there for him or whatever it was. Something personal. Something personal. He's taken a personal issue and I think that, you know, some of Paul's fun songs that, you know, for example, even Obladi Oblada, apparently John was singing in India. But when they get back, he has a little bit less patience for. Mm. And I think that that may reflect the lens with which, you know, with which John is seeing the world at that point and seeing Paul at that point, it's not necessarily necessarily a reflection of the artistic importance or integrity of that music. It's like John's kind of pissed off and he's like, you're bringing yeah. this little, little cutesy song to the studio when you kind of left me when I was devastated. I don't want to fucking hear that, that, you know, fun song. Yeah, I'm opening my veins here. Exactly. And then I'm you're dying. You're, I'm dying I'm, in India. And, and you're talking to me about Molly and Desmond? Like, fuck off. With your cutesy fucking fairy tale romance bullshit. <laughs> Where everybody ends up happy at the end. Fuck you. Exactly. Let's go back to your blues. And so I think that um, when he's critical of Paul's songs on the White Album, it may actually just reflect John's mindset at that time and not the quality of the songs. But John yes. does have an openness to certain songs, and, you know, one of which is Hey Jude. Hey Jude. So let's talk about Hey Jude, um, because this is the, the big song that Paul writes at this time. And in a lot of ways, I think it's like the first song that Paul writes in response to this new situation. If we take him at his word that he was inspired to write this song when he went to visit Julian... Which I do. Him. Which yeah. I do. Yeah. Of course. Me the, too. the original inspiration came. Yes. He, he wrote this or sung this to himself, whatever. He composed it in the car um, when he was going to console Julian and Cynthia after John's abandonment of them. Right. And he's the only one that in the group that's willing to go and see them. Right. 
Right, yes, because John has banned everybody from mm-hmm. seeing, from ever mm-hmm. talking to Cynthia again. Right. And literally, like, 100% of the Beatles circle agrees to this, except for Paul, who's like, fuck you. Right. I'm going to go see your son. And, you, um, and your wife that's been my friend for 10 years, too. Right, yes, of course, and her, too. And she appreciates that, you know? Yes. Although this song is not hasten. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, no, I mean, he loves Sin, too. Yeah. So, so anyway, the point being... Therefore, this song is the first song that's really written about this new situation. Right. From Paul's point of view, anyway. I mean, you could say that maybe John has written the monkey song or whatever. (laughs) 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 Everything, everybody's got something to hide, yes. So, you know, we all know that it's a a great song, a classic, one of Paul's best, whatever. And I think it's a really deep song that works on a lot of levels, right? I think it is genuinely inspired by Julian. I think Paul continues to write the rest of the song about himself and the position that he's in. You know, he's breaking up with Jane, who by all accounts, he loves very dearly. Um, Right. This really would have been written within a couple of weeks of their final breakup. Yeah. I mean, he's at a very, very tender spot in his right. life right now. I mean, he's he's going through a lot of turmoil. Right. I mean, cause, because not only is he losing Jane, he's losing the foundations of her family too, you know? And, and then yeah. John, his best friend, partner, all of a sudden has this significant new person in there, in his life, right? Yes. I mean, you know, the, the complicated part is that I think John and Yoko are living with Paul at this <laughs> time while he's right. writing this. So it's so it's not as if he's not seeing his best friend anymore. Right. So he I does agree. get he does get proximity to him and he does get time, I guess. I mean they're certainly not getting alone time. Ever. He, he and after he, this he and John, yeah. He and John, right. They don't you know, whatever that is seems to be done. And I think that on some level they both know that it's a, it's done if not permanently if not for good if not forever then it's there's definitely there it's been put a halt to because i don't think they have any i don't think they're allowed to be alone together anymore you know once yoko is like a permanent installation right my point being some level of their closeness has been disrupted and I think there's some, you know, there's some acknowledgement about that. Like, I do think that this song is partially about John. I just don't think it's about John and Yoko 100% because Paul is has his own life and his own feelings. And he's going through his own breakup. Right. And he has to decide what he's going to do with his life, you know. And And I do think it's also, there's a little bit about Cynthia and Julian there, too. I mean... You know, I'm not saying that Paul and Julian were best friends or anything. <laughs> Certainly they had some bond, you know. Well, yes. I mean, and Julian Julian says that Paul was, you know, a real parental figure, a father figure. And they, you know, that he had a lot of fun with Paul. So I think, uh, yeah, I agree. There's multiple levels going on. I mean, he's going through his own breakup. It's interesting because the song references a sad song, you know, take a sad song and make it better right at the beginning. So there's kind of an acknowledgement that something has happened but sad, you know, whether that's, you know, whether that's um, the Cynthia John breakup, whether that's the Paul and Jane breakup, whether that's the new separation between John and Paul. Mm-hmm. 
there's something that's happened that you know they need to make better and i think that you know paul being paul there's a very optimistic tone to it this hurts but it's going to get better and ultimately lead to something even better you know to bliss in the end you know so you know i do think that you know i mean it's uplifting like all all of paul's music at its best Right, and I think this is why people love this song so much, is because like life has ups and downs, but he's saying, you know, keep going, things will get better, especially when you're going for what you really want. And I think we should acknowledge too that Paul has met Linda. He has spent two weeks before this, he spent a weekend with her. You know, he doesn't make a move for, you know, two months after this happens, but I think they're in communication. But you know, we've hypothesized that this could be it could be that he's afraid. He's met somebody that he knows is probably the one, and he's a commitment vogue. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure, right? So. Well, we, we also know that the summer of 68 was his absolute most garbage period. <laughs> um, right. You know, like, keep it, not keeping his pants on. Right. Yeah, I mean, that could not, from what we hear, it could not be crazier. I mean, that was his real rock star period, right? Like, I love to make the point, because it's just so ludicrous. It's so <laughs> over the top that it's at some point in 1968, he had a fiancé. Yep. He had at least three girlfriends. Yes, I had girlfriends, and he, yeah. He had, he had a house full of, of groupies all at the same time. <laughs> Who apparently were not supposed to wear clothes, according to one book. <laughs> <laughs> they were running around in lingerie. They were ordered, yes, to be scantily clad. Scantily clad, naked. yes. How, really... how Paul emerged as the square of the group <laughs> <laughs> is forever beyond me. So, so, and I do, I want, just to be clear, like, I do think that he can be heartbroken over Jane and simultaneously excited by Linda and, like, you know interested in her well yeah and it may be a good thing that he did not go straight to linda you know maybe he needed to sort of get this out of his system a little bit before he was yeah finally ready to you know he didn't wait that long to invite her to london it was you know yeah, basically, we were like thank god she wasn't a rebound because he waited three whole months before he invited <laughs> her over. exactly i mean <laughs> it's <London>. ridiculous <laughs> Yeah. Anyways, but so back to Hey Jude, I, I do think you're absolutely right that he writes it when he's going through a seismic shift in his own life. You know, he's yes. met Linda. He's just spent a weekend with her a few weeks before. And he's, yeah. and, you know, and everybody, everybody reports that that was around that weekend, that it was significant. So, yes, I agree that the, the song has multiple themes. I think, you know, Paul being an optimist, it's about the fact that something has happened, but things are going to be okay. It's going to be better in the end. And well, okay, and he, and here's a point that that I was making before when we were talking about this song. There is an element to the song of Paul letting go of John yes. too, and I mean John speaks up, yes. speaks to it. Yeah. Um, I mean I I don't buy the part where he's taking pleasure out of Paul being magnanimous and saying, "Go ahead, John, I give you my blessing," like. I don't buy that at all. Right, like, especially especially because he takes it to the creative partnership level, which I don't think that Paul was necessarily talking about, right? No, because I think Paul wanted to keep him as a creative partner. Right. And a friend. I think Paul wanted to absolutely retain that. I, but the part that I think Paul would have been 
happy to let go or relieved to let go would be the uh, the other part you know the the sort of the neediness that, that, the indefinable realm, yeah, right, exactly. Right. Well, it, right. it sort of goes beyond friendship, right? Where it comes more into like, I have the emotional responsibilities of a spouse, and I think he, maybe he got to a point where he was like, that was a burden to him. I, 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 you know, again, I'm not saying that Paul didn't love John like crazy. I'm just saying that like, I think John was a lot of work. Yes, yes, I, I you know, agree with that. And yeah. like everybody in his life was happy to sort of split duties. It, it, you know, John wanted one person to be that. And like until Yoko came along and was like, I'm up to this job. You know? Right, right, right. I agree with you that I think people have not acknowledged the fact that Paul did bear a lot of the emotional responsibility for John. And I think that was both wildly exciting to Paul as well as sometimes could be heavy. Oh, I also, I think sometimes authors do acknowledge it, but they they conceive of it as if Paul was eager to do it. Like he was thankful to get to do it. And he should have been thankful and eager to do it because John was amazing. You know, like that. Like they, like they think that like Paul was just dying to fucking like listen to John all the time and be like, what's wrong? John? You know, like, and just sort of babysit him and assure him that he was good and right. be supportive and then be firm and then tell him no and boss him around and just, yeah, yeah. you know, to be, he has to be everything, right? He's got to be like the firm hand. He's got to be the daddy. He's got to be mommy when he, you know, when John needs a tit to cling to or whatever. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. and and Paul should have just done all of that and been happy, and then what you know, and then John got tired of him for being so amazing and supportive all the time that he just tossed him aside right. and found Yoko because he got bored <laughs> because Paul just good old Paul was so reliable and conservative, just like Cynthia. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I mean, yeah. He he managed. I don't know how he managed to convince everyone that the world's most desirable creative person exactly that's what i'm saying he's like was some no, boring dead way to get rid of what are you talking about he's like a dynamic sexy rock star and he's writing like the hey jude yeah it's it's it becomes like the best selling single for like the next seven years or something it's but but yes so i think i totally agree with you that there is definitely a letting go there and it could be it could be because it's a burden it could be partly because it's the better angel with him within him saying that yes this is the better way it could be him talking to himself like it's it's self-soothing you know it's going to be better i'm if i go for her if i go for linda you know in the end things will work out so right, it's got right. multiple levels which and is, i'm also i'm also not saying that the paul's not allowed to be sort of petty too i mean he, you know i'm sure he has normal fucking human emotions too some like even if it you know there was a situation of like oh you found someone else huh okay seems like you got over me real quick <laughs> right right <laughs> you know like maybe he feels a little bit of that too because he's a normal person and you know that's a normal reaction to have here's the thing is that i think paul wants regardless of anything else wants to be the number one person in john's life the person he loves most and i think that john 
definitely wants to be the person that Paul loves most. But, you know, John, John has this need for oneness, you know, to have everything in one person that Paul, Paul seems to be able a little bit more well-adjusted in that he can have multiple relationships. You know, when John talks about the song of 1980 and he, references the devil in Paul and the angel in Paul, like the angel in Paul was saying, bless you. And the devil in him didn't want to lose his partner. Right. Right. So subconsciously I take it that he was saying, go ahead right. on a conscious level. He didn't want me to go ahead. Subconsciously he, he, the angel in him I was see. saying, bless you. Yeah. The devil in him didn't like it at all because yeah. he didn't want to lose his partner. I always think of that. And I, I'm like, how is it devilish of Paul to want to keep his partner, <laughs> right? His creative partner, right? And I think, like you know, at the risk of overthinking this, but it's what? like I'm just. I'm just <laughs> <laughs> That's all we do. <laughs> but like, just trying to interpret what John is saying, like it kind of sounds like he's saying, like, well, if I can't have you, then let me go. That John is saying that to Paul. Yeah, not not like because he wants to be let go, but but he's more like, let me do it again. Well, if well if I can't have you, then let me go. You know, like that. And Paul and Paul turns around and says, you know what? You're right. I should. I let you go. God bless you. Be with God. Go. You know, go be with Yoko. And John's kind of like, well. Well, uh, wait well, a minute. I, uh, uh, <laughs> Aren't you mad? What I get from John is like a kind of an uncomfortable ambivalence about, you know. Hey Jude, is Paul's? It's one of his masterpieces. You mean, was that when he came and said, listen to this song? I don't think I had anything to do with it. Ask him. <laughs> because he's not like, hallelujah, Paul gave me the go ahead and I'm right, right, right. Fuck him. He's good. I'm good. We're all good. It wasn't like it was smooth sailing from that point. He was like, oh, so I have your blessing. Okay. Yeah. And maybe John got a message from this that hmm. Paul was accepting things. And so John took it as a nod that this is what Paul wanted. And this is how things should progress. Yes, I take it that way. Yeah, I mean, that sort of explains John John's perspective later. In later. His, mm -hmm. You know, ambivalence is, he's kind of taking a cue from Paul that he, this is the right direction. Yes, I think so. And it's funny because Paul's like, I was taking my cue from John. You know, it's like, I really, I honestly really think that they're, they're trying to read each other at this time. And I think it's like, you know, I think Paul reads it as John saying, Hey, I, I want to move on. I'm ready to move on. And Paul's like, Oh, okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's move on. You're right. And John's like, oh, God damn it. You know? Right. He's like, oh, so you do want to move on. Don't, I uh, knew it. I fucking knew it. <laughs> I totally think that's what's going on here. <laughs> but I always heard it as a song to me. If you think about it, Yoko's just coming to the picture. He's saying, hey, Jude. Hey, John. 
I mean, so I'm trying to have one of those fans that's writing things into it, but you can work, you can hear it as a song to me. You know, if John is spending all this time with Yoko and Paul is re relatively excluded from it, that he has more time and we can see him acting like a rock star that summer, you know, but he says at some point that he's decided that one night stands were not rewarding, that it was, mm. he was sick of waking up with different women, you know, that with, what did he say? Um, uh, old drinks and new women. And you know, that, jeez, oh, <laughs> I know it's, it. that sounds like a really old person saying, but, uh, yeah. So he makes the yeah, point. He sounds like an old whore. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was a young whore. Um, <laughs> but he decided after this period that he was, you know, done, it wasn't rewarding and that, you know, John was clearly busy with other activities. So I think that it was at this point that Paul made the move and threw a line out to Linda. And without John being so dominant in his life, that he was truly able to bond with Linda. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point. You know, we've talked about, we've talked before about how Paul seems to constantly be vying for space, for personal space. But then here's an example of John actually giving him space. <laughs> and I think Paul's spoken about it, too. He's kind of said a few times, like, it was good. It was like, oh, now we're growing up. You know, like, now we need to, the army needs to break up or whatever. And we get women, you know, or <laughs> right. however he put it. And, you know, by all accounts, when Linda came, he was quite happy. You know, there's many accounts of him being happier once she arrived. And I think that between that and having more free time and more emotional free space, that he was able to actually truly bond with her in maybe a different way. We also have an anecdote f from Jeff Emmerich that he wrote about in his book, which was when John invited Yoko to sing the the woman's line or whatever on bungalow bill i matched the dates up and that appears to have happened on a day when linda came into the studio right uh which you know may or may not be a coincidence but um this is jeff's account of how that happened okay he writes in fact yoko didn't say a word to anyone except john for several days then one afternoon in the middle of a backing vocal overdub john suddenly turned to her and said you know, I think you should do this part. Paul, who had been singing the line, gave John a look of disbelief and then walked away in disgust. George and Ringo, sitting a few feet away, exchanged ominous glances. Unperturbed, Lennon handed her a set of headphones and she stepped in front of the mic. And that is how Yoko Ono came to sing a line on a Beatles album. We do have, it's interesting because we have photographic evidence that this is the day that Linda was in the studio because she took a number of photos and um, you know they're they're pretty funny because you know everybody's playing for her See, Linda yeah. Linda seemed to have been a friendly soul most people seem to have liked her but it's interesting looking at the, the photos that Linda took of John he's the only one that does not engage with her and so yeah you could put it that way yeah there's really two extremes. One, he's like studiously ignoring her or else glaring. I would say that those were the two faces he gave to her that day. And, and, and well, yeah, and not like glaring like 
I don't want my picture taken right now. Thank you. It's more like I will rip that camera out of your hands. <laughs> right. And smash it on the ground. Right. And it's not like John hates to be photographed or anything like that. It's just, <laughs> in this case, I think he does not like the photographer. It's like everybody looks happy and John looks furious. He looks scary in that picture. He, he actually looks very unhappy in those photos. So read into that what you will. But I, I think he's not feeling especially welcoming towards Linda. I, I think that John bringing Yoko in the studio was deliberate. You know, as much as we talk about them being hugely in love, I mean, it was a deliberate act for protection and, you know, a buffer. He's got a permanent advocate, but also to provoke. And I think that, um, yeah. you know, it's shocking that that Yoko and John managed to bamboozle the rest of the world and put the blame on Paul for being jealous, which he had every right to be on a professional level. Like it would have been weird if Paul had not been bothered. Yeah. Right. You know, that this is his professional partner. As we've discussed, like who goes to work with their lover and then is pissed off saying everybody else is jealous. Like, no, right, right. everybody else is annoyed because yes. you are infringing on their space and it's not appropriate or professional. And so yeah. I think that there is, there's a few elements here. There's the romantic, there's the professional. And then I think because Paul and John put so much of themselves into their work, there is also an emotional, personal element to it here. But I think primarily, you know, you see Paul and the other Beatles are reacting from a professional level, right? Absolutely, yes. And I think that it gets complicated because their songs together are highly emotional for them because it is very much a creative product of them. So I think that Paul is frustrated and hurt by having this block all of a sudden, you know, that is an impediment to them working yes. together. And so again, he is rightly upset about this. Yes. And But then John and Yoko talk about it later. It's like Paul was in the wrong for right. pushing it back. Like John to me Paul. is the one that has done the weird move by mixing the professional and the romantic. By How did he, how did he manage to switch it all back onto Paul? Right. So that John for me is doing a very weird thing you know, he's disguising it by saying, this is my lover and I'm bringing her in because I can't be without her, but I'm putting her in a professional situation so that it makes it very difficult for Paul to compete or to push back because she's also his girlfriend. And, you know, there's something very complicated about what John is doing. Well, well, here's the thing is that it's difficult to, um, compartmentalize all these things because as you said they bleed into other areas and sometimes they're going on simultaneously like you know everybody's annoyed by yoko's presence on a professional level yes however sometimes paul is simultaneously annoyed at her professionally and also emotionally right right like if john is doing things that are deliberately meant to hurt his feelings and provoke him right that could that might hurt his feelings, right? So right. it could be both. But the the 
the annoying and frustrating thing is that John and Yoko spun it as if the Beatles had no right to object on a professional level. Right. And it was, it was their issue, the Beatles issue rather than what John and Yoko were doing. And again, when you say that Paul had an an emotional issue, I, I mean, I wish people would just look at this for a second. Like Paul's whole world has been wrapped around, wrapped up with John and their partnership and creating something. These are best friends that all of a sudden he can't communicate properly with his best friend without having a person there. I mean, anybody would be hurt because that's kind of a, that is, that's infringing on their relationship. That's, that's putting something in, into their own bond, you know? And I'm sure Paul is like, why is this going on? And he has a right to feel like that. And I think that the interesting thing is, why does John feel the need to do that? And nobody ever asks that. I mean, if Paul had, if Paul and Marianne Faithful had just started dating and then all of a sudden Paul brought her into the studio ever, every day and sat her next to him and sort of vaguely threatened that they might be new musical partners. You know, like just sort of kept her around as like a loaded gun. Right. That's what, that's what she is, is she's sort of a continual reminder to mm-hmm. pay attention because you might lose yeah. this. Yeah. Just so you know, she's here. I can run off with her at any time. And she's giving me everything. The thing that confuses me is that why, because, why when John meets a woman that he's romantically involved with, does that mean their creative partnership is over? Like, that's always perplexed me, you know? Yeah, like, you, yeah, can like ha- you can have both, John. He can right. stay your creative partner and let you have another big relationship. But I think that that, to me, reflects the fact that John, much more so than Paul, I think John merges and confuses the romantic partner and creative partner. That's right. Well, and no one says, wait, 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 explain yourself. Well, I wish they would occasionally have done that. I know. John John said a lot of crazy shit and nobody ever called him on. They're just like, oh, so Paul was jealous, huh? I wish somebody would say, well, wait a minute. Why, when you got a girlfriend, did, did you not long, no longer be creative partners with your work creative partner? I mean, <laughs> it makes no sense. It makes, makes no sense. sense. And, and like you said, and the weirdest thing is they manage, like they managed to make the world's biggest rock star into a square. Those two managed <laughs> right. to spin it that, that Paul was the one that had the problem. <laughs> Right, right. Ooh, we're so in bizarre land. Okay, but right. yet we have we have to just like painstakingly pick this apart at every turn because it's yeah, because it's madness. Because <laughs> like like we said at the beginning, there are tropes and assumptions that just keep being repeated and that people can't even see them anymore. It was at Montague Square, feeling more than a little bruised and already like outlaws, Yoko says, that they began to take heroin. As Yoko later put it, they took heroin as a celebration of ourselves as artists. Of course, Yoko says, George says it was me who put John on heroin, but that wasn't true. John wouldn't take anything he didn't want to take. 
Still, many of John's intimates saw heroin as the way that Yoko could gain complete control over John. If there was one single element that was the most crucial in the breakup of the Beatles, it was John's heroin addiction. And that comes from The Love You Make by Peter Brown. In that passage, Yoko goes on to say, like, I, he did ask me if I'd ever done heroin. I said, yes, it was beautiful. And it's it's pretty amazing. And then I got him some. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't get him on it. <laughs> the thing about heroin is that, you know, from what I understand, heroin can be very exclusive to those to the groups of people who are doing it you know Marianne Faithful makes this point that it becomes a very uh, small group you only really want to be with people who are doing heroin and people who are supplying you with heroin yeah. and so you know if this is the situation that they've moved in there and they're doing heroin that is an additional barrier to potentially Paul being close to John at this point you know, I remember reading, I don't have the quote in front of me, but I remember reading somebody asked Paul, in retrospect, after John had died, like probably in the 80s or something, like, what was your reaction to John doing heroin? And Paul just said, sad. It just made me very sad. Yeah, and I mean, that's a, I, I think it probably was sad to him because it separated them, but probably much more because he knew this wasn't good, you know, that this this is not what he wanted for John. Yeah. Well, and the thing is that, like, <clears throat> for all this narrative that, like, Paul was only concerned about the bottom line and number one hits and, you know, keeping the Beatles machine going for his own benefit and all that kind of stuff, it's like his reaction is an anger. But, like, John, you're fucking up the band with your heroin. You know, it's not even it's not even anger at Yoko. You know, for like bringing the heroin in, it's just sad. like he's just sad. I mean, again, it kind of reflects Paul's love for John. You know, the other thing is that like it, it must make Paul feel so helpless. Like he's so shut out. Like there's nothing he can do about it. Well, I think that that is, you know, a really important point that heroin is something that manages to separate Paul and John. I, Paul's not going to follow him into this space. He's not going to follow John and Yoko. And John and Yoko are in this space together. So it's an additional element that separates them. No, and like, and the fact that John, I mean, like we know that he took it, you know, for pain, for pain. Which is always confusing to me because this is supposedly their love club period and so John and Yoko yeah, yeah it's just it, it's confusing to me that two people who are madly in love which does actually you know create chemicals in the brain that are positive why why is John in so much pain at this point I mean he should be happy yeah
interestingly, you know, this is always positioned as John being creatively on fire when he meets Yoko. And I think that typical to the Beatles narrative, they don't afford Paul the same sort of benefit of Paul's creativity being on, you know, Paul being creatively yeah. on fire when you, when Linda arrives. I mean, John, yeah. in retrospect, claims that, you know, that Long and Winding Road is Paul's creative, you know, spurt because of Yoko. But let's let's say that maybe it had something to do with his, the what his wife of the next 30 years being <laughs> yeah, right. on the scene, yeah. you know? And yeah. so Paul happens to go through an incredibly creative period between the fall of 68 you know mid 68 to mid 69 is unbelievably creative for paul yeah i mean yeah. he not only finishes the white album but he's working on mary hopkins's album and he writes you know over this period of a month or two he comes to the let it be sessions with songs including mm -hmm. with you know when linda first arrives he writes let it be there's there's you know evidence of that right now on the the new white album release uh, there's a version of it there. So, you know, you can see that Paul has been stimulated. And then we have two accounts by other people. We have Donovan. Yes. You know, when I when I read this quote, I think it's a very different take on Paul and where Paul's at at this time. And it is corroborated by the way that Hunter talks about Paul at this time. So this is, I think, post-White Album, so mid-November to the return i mean paul's insane let's just put it like he's insane the yes. amount of work he does he is well and and that's why like this quote rings so true to me sort of painted to be this sad sack going like desperately trying to keep the group together and they forget the fact that this guy wants them to get together because he's creatively on fire i'll read this this is from donovan Paul and I had a close relationship in the 60s for brief periods, and I have nothing but respect for that man's writing talent. I can write a song every five minutes if we get going, and Paul can as well. And that was the breakup, really, with the Beatles, I think, because Paul is so creative. Honestly, if he just tinkles the piano, there's another song. Paul needed at that time somebody like me who could sit around and jam with him. The Beatles didn't jam at that time. They made records. Every time they got together, the tape was rolling. So that's what I did for Paul in those few months we were together. And I mean, that's very different. He says... That, that was the breakup, really, with the Beatles. I think, because it, Paul... Because Paul is so creative, yeah. Right. I mean, what a different take than, <laughs> yeah, than right? the story, which is all about John needing to break free. Like I said, this is corroborated by what Hunter says. You know, Paul, out of the blue, decides it's a good idea. He'd put out an invitation for the Beatles, any of them to come and join him and his wife in, in Portugal. And on a whim, Paul decides to go and take Linda and Heather and visit Hunter because Hunter's got kids too. And they show up in the middle of the night. But his account of Paul when he's there is Paul's writing a book. He is... Uh, writing songs and you know he says he takes his guitar with him everywhere he goes and he's staying up late at night and you know debating with his wife in a fun way so he you know and he also says that Paul is full of plans for the Beatles so again this is not somebody who is down or anything we, t we somebody who's almost cr crazily on fire 
Okay, so we see that once John gets together with Yoko, together they do a, a series of public activities, happenings, that gain them fame. And John becomes more rebellious with her. I think that she plays into this side and or she... Yeah, encourages that. I, yeah, part she of encourages it too. that side of it. I think that a lot of the ideas are probably stemming from her. Oh yeah. But in 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 his mindset of wanting of feeling hurt and wanting to prove himself and wanting to, you know, develop a new identity, he's gung ho to be doing these things as well. As well as the fact that I think there is some overlap between their idealism. You know, that they do yeah, have a, yeah, yeah. a shared idealism and this isn't I'm not saying it's fake. I'm saying that there are multiple benefits to them doing this. Sure. Right. That, you know, and I think that they're getting a lot of attention in this time, which, again, serves many purposes. Yes. So as he does this, John starts to separate his identity from Paul. You know, she's a, she's both his new romance, but she also enables him to not be as dependent on Paul. And yes. I think that you see a little bit of John's staking out a bit of independence on the White Album. Again, not because he wasn't interested. I mean, I think it was the opposite. But I think out of defiance, you know, you didn't appreciate me. I, I can do this. You know, I find it personally odd that two people who are hugely in love all of a sudden need to also start doing heroin. Um, it seems a little bit counterintuitive to me and then you know john talks about the love cloud but i'm not sure and that it's given him like a new lease on life but like that's what that's kind of what we don't see i mean we do see it that he has a sort of a new creative lease on life because as you said he's kind of he's rebranding yeah himself or yoko is rebranding him yes you know and then it's like it's mutually beneficial to them because now yoko is famous which is what she wanted right and i mean she's loving the attention yeah yeah of course yeah she's cashing in and now they have the john yoko brand also yep so they've john has more options for himself now now it's not as if he has nowhere to go Right, and he says that, that he used her. What I did was, in my own cowardly way, was use Yoko. It was like, now I have the strength to leave because I know there is another uh, another side to life. You know, mm-hmm. that he used her as a way of lessening, this is the way I took it, as lessening his dependence on the Beatles so that he would be okay. Whatever the situation, if Paul left, if they broke up, if he left, you know, at least he's got he's got a boat. He's got a life raft, you know, he's not on his own. And I think this enables him to not be as dependent on Paul anymore. So, you know, all of a sudden John's in a, an awkward position where I think he yeah. benefited from both hurting Paul by diminishing him and won with her by, but yeah. Yeah. And, th- and then that was a really vicious cycle because I don't think he really meant right. that. But all of a sudden, he's put himself out on public to placate her and hurt Paul. And all of a sudden, he can't go back on it. You know, John has gone through a radical, radical year in 68 in that, you know, he's gotten a divorce and he's with a new woman. And, you know, that maybe that is preferable to him. He's not as dependent on Paul. If that was a, an issue with it for him or a... An aspect that was frustrating to him, he's managed to resolve that in some ways. 
and yet he's not entirely happier either. You know, he's yeah. he's gained some, like you've said, he's he's started to build out his own personal brand. He's getting attention for that. Not not all of which is positive. He's getting a lot of negative pushback, which I think right. brought John and Yoko together, closer together. And then, right, and then she had a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Which again would, would have brought them together, I think. Yeah. You know, he seemed to have been devoted to her and being in the hospital and they were busted for drugs. And again, you know, yeah. all those kinds of things do bond people. And, and, and very importantly, they're doing heroin. So, you know, these are all things that are playing into it. But when he talks to Cod at the end of the year, we don't see a John that's happier. It's, it, it, it's probably better than being hurt all the time. Yeah. But he didn't get what he wanted. Right. And yeah, that's how I took it too. After John has really upended his life, you know, he's got a new person, he's got Yoko, which is good. You know, we know that John wanted something new and he wanted security. But on the other hand, his other major relationship with his creative partner of the past 10 years, who he really cares about, it's almost unrecognizable from a year earlier. And I think if some of his actions were done specifically to provoke a reaction from Paul, then in some ways I don't know how well they worked because Paul started to work a little bit more on his own in the studio and he started to bond more with Linda and he started to give John more space. And I can see how he's just, like he's played all his cards by this point. He's been yeah. angry on the album, you know? Yeah. And he's gotten it all out and then he's done the rock and roll circus and then all of a sudden yeah he comes back and he doesn't have any more and like he's got no songs except for the yeah. one you know don't let me down yeah. well which is half done in some ways he had no choice but to leave i mean it was doing him harm right yeah and so he had to find somebody he had to find somebody new i, I or you know maybe he could have just talked to paul I'm not sure, you know, that that's the other alternative. I, I don't know if that would have worked. So November, John's starting to go like, um, well, now that I've had some space, I'm starting to think, did I overreact? You know, or did I did it happen what I think happened? And, right. you know. And was I clear? Maybe he didn't get what I was trying to say. And this is from the interview with John Cott for Rolling Stone. It's November 23rd, 1968. I guess this is the first Rolling Stone interview. So I guess this is the first one. So they talk about, uh, they talk about India uh, for a bit. And Cott asks, do you feel better now? John says, yes. And worse. What do you feel about India now? John says, I've got no regrets at all because it was a groove and I had some great experiences meditating eight hours a day. Some amazing things, some amazing trips. It was great. And then he continues to say that he still meditates on and off and George is doing it regularly. It's just that a few things happened or didn't happen. I don't know, but something happened. It was sort of like a click and we just left and I don't know when went on. It's too near. I don't really know what happened. So <laughs> based on that, I... I think we don't know what happened in India. <laughs> right. And, and the interesting thing is John doesn't seem to totally know what happened, you know, which, which to me suggests that 
Whatever was communicated wasn't totally clear, and I suspect John took it one way. And, you know, it could be that he's looking back and thinking, did that happen? I think he's already questioning it by the end of the year. He's like, oh, shit. I'm not sure that what happened happened. Was I clear? Did I read Paul right? And so, because it's kind of like he's giving him one last shot here and let it be. I think so too. Yeah. And we've got, we've got buckets of receipts. 